Welcome back to the Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read a page of the Wise Man's Fear and then we talk about it. This is page 575. A minstrel, rich enough to hire an Adam bodyguard? You might look like fruit ripe for the picking. I thought longingly of the arrow catch I'd sold to Kilvin and realized he'd been right. People would pay dearly for them. I'd give every penny in my pocket for one right now. I gestured to Tempe. Acceptance, dishonesty, agreement. Uh, plum is a sweet fruit, I said, straining my ears for telltale sounds from the surrounding trees. Should we run to the trees for cover, or would it be better to pretend we were unaware of them? What could I do if they had tacked? I had the knife I'd bought from the tinker on my belt, but I had no idea how to use it. I was suddenly aware of how terribly unprepared I was. What in God's name was I doing out here? I didn't belong in this situation. Why had the mayor sent me? Just as I was starting to sweat in earnest, I heard a sudden snap and rustle in the underbrush. A horned heart burst from the trees and was across the road in three easy bounds. A moment later, two hinds followed. One paused in the center of the road and turned to look at us curiously, her long ear twitching. Then she was off and lost among the trees. My heart was racing, and I let out a slow, nervous laugh. I turned to look at Tempe, only to find him with his sword drawn. The fingers of his left hand curled into embarrassment, then made several quick gestures I couldn't identify. He sheathed the sword without a flourish of any sort gesture as casual as putting your hand in your pocket. Frustration. I nodded. Glad as I was to not be spreading arrows from my back, an ambush would at least have given us a clue as to where the bandits were. Agreement. Understatement. We silently continued our walk toward Crossan. Crossan wasn't much as far as towns go. Twenty or thirty buildings with thick forests on every side. If it hadn't been on the King's Highway, it probably wouldn't even have warranted a name. But since it was on the King's Highway, there was a reasonably stocked general goods store that supplied travelers and the scattering of nearby farms. There was a small post station that was also a livery and a farrier, and a small church that was also a brewery. And an inn, of course. While the Laughing Moon was barely a third the size of the Pennysworth, it was still several steps above what you'd expect for a town like this. It was two stories tall, with three private rooms, and a bath! Nice that you can get a bath. <laughs> Best page, by the way. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I have so many things. Where to begin? Begin at the beginning and go on from there. I don't want to. I'm going to begin at the end. Uh, the the end is called The Laughing Moon, which I feel like cannot be just... It can't be just a name. Could it be just a name? Maybe it is just a name. I don't know. But it's got the word moon in it, so I'm paying attention. Like, we just, we just started the story about Jax... And now there's this thing, and it's called the Laughing Moon. I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking about it a lot. Well, it's it's not a coincidence because someone wrote it, but uh, I do think it's significant, or at least it's like, you know, it's a bit of kismet, perhaps in the universe, or it's a bit of like an acknowledgement that they're kind of close to a part of the forest where weird things happen. I definitely think it's a way to keep the moon centered thematically. Sure. On some level. It also has three private rooms, three being the keyword there. Um, also, also... Wait, the... wait, sorry. Why is that important? Because the number three is important. Oh. That's okay. literally it. Um, okay, and then the church is also a brewery, which feels very real because monks were some of the first people to brew beer in that part of the world. <laughs> in, like, Europe. <laughs> monks were... It was one of the things that monks could do to, like, earn money for the monastery, right? They couldn't, like have a lot of traditional trades, but they could, they had the time and, and wherewithal to brew beer and, and so, things like that. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So that felt sort of like, like a pull from real world, which was kind of nice. 
It also makes sense to me that the post station is also a livery and a farrier because those are all things that have to do with the keeping of horses. Now, Jeremy, I know what a livery and a farrier are, but I'm sure you'd like to explain to our listeners. Or just me. You can just explain it to me. I don't know. (laughs) Horse girls and boys in our listenership, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, a farrier is someone who puts the horseshoes on the horse and maintains the horseshoes that the blacksmith has made. And uh, a livery has to do with uh, what, what you call tack, which is all the other... Uh, equipment that you need to ride a horse, saddles, bridles, reins, saddlebags, blankets, bits, etc. That's all dealt with at the livery and possibly feed as well. So the post station, the post operates by horse. It makes sense that, you know, a, a postie who comes through town might also, you know, want, you know, oh, this horse that I rode has, you know, a horseshoe that's not, you know, that's that's loose or needs he needs a new horseshoe. The farrier can can give him a new one and I can pick up some new tack as well. Yeah, it's clearly a way station. This town has sprung up as a, a like a waypoint inside the forest on the King's Road. Ooh. So it makes sense that it would service travelers and that it would have a big inn and it would have, you know, something to create beer to supply the inn, presumably, um, and then to service travelers and, and posties, as you say. So it all it all scams. In fact, it seems like that's basically the economic engine of Crossin is the fact that it is on the King's Road. It's like on the way. In, it's like kind of the last town you hit before you get deep too deep into this forest. Yeah, it's a save point. You know, yeah. you go, you find the site of grace there. You can shuffle around your, your items and memorize some new spells. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the icon has appeared on Quoth's mini-map. And now he can fast yeah, travel. Put to your it. summon sign there. Yeah, exactly. It's about the livery and the farrier, just because you're the, you're a person who knows more about this than me. Is would a livery, if they're in charge of tech, also be like? Would they be like a saddlery plus? Because I know like a saddlery makes saddles, but I don't know if they make anything else. So like a livery is like. I think does does not a livery include a saddle? Yeah, I would think so, but I've never heard of a saddlery before. So maybe oh. I, I don't know this, but my sort of assumption when when I'm reading about livery in books is that it includes the saddle. It's all the materials you need to attach to a horse in order to ride it. I see. See, I only knew about saddleries. I did not know about liveries. But that's just because there was a place that smelled like horses that my friend liked to visit called Apple Saddlery in Ottawa. Yeah, well, when Jordana, when you drink too much, your, your livery fails. Oh, great. I'll uh, keep that in mind. Thanks. I want to talk about Quoth's reaction in the forest. This is not the first time Quoth has encountered violence, obviously, in his life, but it does seem like uh, he's about to panic. It seems like he is suddenly realizing the reality of what he's got himself into, and he realizes how unprepared he is. And it, he's really working himself up. He's really feels like he's he's doomed here. And I almost wonder if this encounter... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure actually this encounter has, has like not just this, but like the whole time in the forest hunting the bandits makes him realize he needs to learn how to fight like Tempe. Um, we've talked a bit about how everything Quoth does is really just him trying to uh, save himself from trauma. It's all just like trauma responses and it's all so, like self-defense. And in this case, quite literally, uh, Quoth has identified a, a gap in his knowledge. He's identified a weakness. He's not really able to defend himself martially. And while he does get a clue to the Chandrian, 
which is why he tells himself he goes off to Adem. I can't help but wonder if by being made to feel helpless here, he realizes on some level that he needs to fill that gap. And he's decided that since the best fighters are the Adem, I'm going to go learn how to fight from the best fighters, much the same way that like the best thinkers are at the university. So I had to go to the university to learn how to think and do magic. That feels true. I also, I was just thinking that his reaction uh, more than, more than kind of being trauma related might also be just like, he's been on a job for a while and it's like a, the, uh, what is that? I guess the tension of like having waited for the bandits and then suddenly it catches up with you kind of thing. So like, there's a certain amount of stress there that specifically just like would affect anyone regardless, I think of, uh, what had come before that, that yeah. I think he's reacting to. Cause he's, he's been in the woods for however long nothing's happened. And Maybe he felt really ready before and then he got kind of complacent and now suddenly it's all catching up to him and stuff like that. Well, I think he didn't plan to get found, right? Like, I think Foth has planned to sneak up on the bandits, but he hasn't planned for the bandits to find him, to sneak up on him. Indeed. And I don't actually know if he does. I don't know if he learns from this, but we've this is an extension of his tragic flaw where he doesn't think things through. He hasn't really planned for failure here. He's planned his great plan he assumes his great plan is going to work. And he hasn't really thought through what happens if, say, the bandits have people out looking for them or the bandits have, like, spotters and crossing or something, which, you know, was what I would do, I like to think. If I was running a, a bandit crew, I would have someone stationed in. I mean, I feel like not if you were a 15-year-old. <laughs> no, well, I mean, if I was a super smart 15-year-old uh, who is the very best at everything I do, um, then I, I'd like to think I, I mean, would. I think one of the things that this moment is doing is it is illustrating for us that Quoth is not actually the best at everything. He is a smart 15 year old who's like, you know, has some pretty specialized knowledge and some, you know, unusual talents, but he is not a walking plot device, right? Like he's not uh, automatically the best at everything. He's not prepared for every situation. This is a very humanizing moment for Quoth because he's just panicking. He's just thinking, oh my God, I'm out on the road. There could be bandits. They could have bows. Like, I'm so screwed. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do in this situation. And I like that. As you say, it's humanizing. We're so used to him being the great success boy that it's nice to see him <laughs> kind of be totally uh, be totally screwed. Mm. This reminds me, this is sort of a, this is a tangent, but uh, there's a gap between the way we understand James Bond based on the movies these days versus how he's portrayed in the original books. Uh, and it's a bit like this. In the original books, which are from inside James Bond's head, he's often like this. He's often like Foth, where he's like, well, I'm screwed now. They've got, totally got the jump on me. I have absolutely no way out. I guess I'm ready for death. Wait, maybe I could try this one desperate thing. Oh, I can't believe that worked. Wow, I, that's I'm so lucky. And you know, outwardly in the in the books, he projects this air of competence. But I think a lot of what's interesting about the character in the books is that he's always one step away from from panic and despair. And this this moment reminds me of that. It's interesting to contrast him with Tempe because he he does not even have that veneer of of cool collectedness like he's kind of like after like he's about to start breaking he's breaking out in a sweat when the deer shows up and then he kind of has a panic like giggle at himself Tempe lets Quoth know that he's embarrassed but other than that Tempe seems quite calm I think that Tempe 
has more preparation in his background for the idea that he might be ambushed on the road and have to defend himself than uh, Quoth does. I think that Tempe is also panicked and embarrassed. I think that the he's, he does the assign for embarrassment and then several quick gestures that Quoth can't identify. I think that this is Tempe like being frustrated and embarrassed and like like deeply embarrassed. Like like he let himself get so worked up. He let himself believe that he was he was being snuck oh, up. Oh yes, on. I agree. Um, I think that... But Tempe also had the presence of mind to draw his sword. True dad. Right, like Tempe was True. at least prepared like, oh god, if they ambush us I at least can probably fight off two or three of them because I am a trained warrior and I've probably received some training of like what to do if you get ambushed on the road. Like, because especially because the Adam often get hired out as like caravan guards, right? So like he would have to know, you know, that's like caravan guard 101, what to do if you get ambushed by bandits on the road. This is from Sarah from London who writes, dangerous quest as reward. Dear all, on page 561, you discussed Quoth's awareness that Alvaran sending him out into the Eld would be a convenient way of getting rid of him and how much that is intentional. I had a couple of thoughts. One was that if it is intentional, then sending him with an obviously competent team makes some sense because we all know, as does Alvaran, that Quoth is very clever and the mission needs to be seen and the mission needs to seem plausible at the outset or he'd question it immediately. The other was that the concept of doing something like winning a tournament or saving the king's life being rewarded by going on a dangerous quest is quite common in fairy stories and traditional tales. I can feel something nagging in my brain about a particular story, but can't call it to mind. You know it's true, though, because it happens in Shrek when he accidentally wins Lord Farquaad's tournament and wins the right to go rescue Fiona. All the best, signed, Sarah from London. Yeah, that's a really good point that this is something out of a story. This is kind of a trope. Like you you save the king's life and therefore earn the right to go slay the dragon or you like mm-hmm. you you cut the Gordian knot or you slay the suitors or you you shoot through the axes. Like there's a lot of this in myth where you do some impossible feat and therefore win the right to go do the even more mm-hmm. impossible. You prove yourself worthy of going off to die. Uh, it also puts me a little bit in mind of uh, the the movie The 13th Warrior. Which is like is uh, it's a different example, but it's uh, I think it still applies. Well, go on. I haven't seen it. So what happens in the Thirteenth War? Oh, if you haven't seen the kind of underrated nineteen nineties movie, The Thirteenth Warrior, in which uh, Antonio Banderas is problematically cast as an Arab guy who is banished from the you know the Sultan's court for screwing the Sultan's wife. Uh, and he ends up hanging out with some Vikings. Just because he happens to be in the right place at the right time, he is embroiled in a prophecy uh, that gets him, he is the titular 13th warrior present at a gathering of warriors just when the messenger from King Hrothgar comes and says, oh, the king, the kingdom is in peril. He's being attacked every night by a monster called Grendel that can't be killed. We need 13 warriors to go and go and uh, rescue the king. Beowulf and his like his like 11 buddies all sort of stand up and go, yes, we are. We are warriors. We'll go and help. And then no one else is putting their hand up. And the prophetess goes, oh, him. He's the 13th. And they all point it. I think his name's Idnal Rashid. And he's like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm, just, I'm a poet. I'm a lover. Not literally like I'm a lover, not a fighter. Uh, and then he the movie is like him going off to to, you know, kill Grendel. Cool, man. So that's our recommendation for the day. <laughs> that was that was such a tangent that I forgot my note. <laughs> oh, wait. I remember it. Sort of. Well, I remember one of the two notes. One of them was, this is 
London, like they're from London, like the English London, not like the one really close by, right? I presumably is that it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I just wanted to know if if they were from the one that's close to us. You know, like a local. It'd be nice to to have a local listener. I'm just saying. I think that it, it is prudent in, in these matters to just assume that when someone says they're from London, they're from London, England, because I think anyone who is from London, Ontario, would tell you, "I'm from London, Ontario." So as not to be confusing. Uh, I don't know. If you ran into someone on the street in Toronto, Ontario, and they said they were from London and they weren't like obviously a Brit, you could probably surmise that they were from London, Ontario. But in an international podcast, when someone writes and says they're from London, I think we have to assume they're from the London. London, London, England. You know what? Write us again. (laughs) Tell us where you're from. We'll uh, we'll dox you here on the podcast. Tell us which zone in London you're from. At Jordana's behest. I just, I just, just hoping for like local listeners is all okay. Like international is cool too, but like if if we want to like be famous and do a tour, we should go local. So excuse I me, to, I want to go travel. on tour to Brazil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love that too, but it's not like I have the budget for that, <laughs> and I don't think the Patreon could pay for all of us. <laughs> they pay you to go on tour. So you you get what Jared what Jordan is saying, right, listeners? Jordan is asking you for money. She's passing around the cap. No, 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 no! I did. I, I mean, uh, I, only if they want us to visit them, I guess. Uh, <laughs> if you want Jordan to come to your house and eat your food, then go to the Patreon and donate as little as a dollar a month to get the complete back catalog of over 160 posts, including one uh, episode per month that the podcast has been on, which is like four or five years now. So an awful lot of, of back episodes as well as some wonderful art from Jordana and apparently uh, an open invitation to come and live at your house. So yeah, you should do that. <laughs> Patreon.com slash page of the wind as little as a dollar. We also have a Ko-Fi if you want to just uh, send us some money as a tip and uh, not get anything in return except for our gratitude. That's ko-fi dot, nope, not dot, ko-fi slash. Uh, and otherwise you can harangue us at our mailbag, page of the wind at gmail.com. Yep. Uh, Jordana, do you have any dietary restrictions? Oh, I have lots. Why? Well, because if you're going to be staying at our listeners' houses, they should know what to feed you. You're allergic to apples. Uh, I'll send them the I'll send them the infographic on my oral allergy syndrome when we when we get to that bridge. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's a really high Patreon tier, unlocking all the ways you can kill Jordana with food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the, don't, at the maximum please Patreon don't kill tier. Me with food. At the max Patreon tier, you get the list we'll of our all our weaknesses. Yeah, you get the Batman document of how to destroy us. <laughs> uh, tune in same pod time same pod channel on tomorrow's page uh, wait, wait.